0: John chapter 10, verses 11 through 15. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. The other day, uh, I got a call from uh, my wife Alyssa, and uh, she had just uh, picked up our daughter, uh, Geneva, who's uh, five years old. she just turned five. And uh, Geneva uh, was... Uh, uh, ha- had had a had a really rough day at school, and she was like Geneva or Alyssa calls me to tell me that like Geneva had a hard day at school and she was like sobbing uncontrollably and and I'll spell you kind of all the all, all the dirty details of it but basically she just had a really rough day at school with uh, some of her friends and she was feeling so small and so rejected and just beside herself because of it. And as Alyssa was explaining this to me over the phone, after picking up Geneva from school, I could I could hear my little girl just bawling her eyes out from the back row of the minivan. I mean, it just like it makes my eyes well up just just thinking about that that conversation, uh, and it just shattered my heart. Uh, to hear about what she went through and what she said and, and to hear her crying in the back. And so just with the nature of what had happened and how my daughter was feeling, I decided to head home a little early that day to spend some some time with her. And so and so I went to the florist first, and I asked them to, to make this tiny bouquet of these just obnoxiously hot pink flowers, uh, which is my daughter's favorite color, much to my dismay. Uh, and then I drove over to meet up with my family, and I surprised little Geneva with her with her flowers, her little bouquet, and I I gave her a great big hug. And then I walked her over to Tilly's to get some like little little kids sunglasses because they're on sale for six dollars right now over there. Just pro tip, right? Uh, uh, and I got she got a picture of the sunglasses uh, I bought it, Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that was like 10 minutes after I bought her a sunglasses, living her best life. We stopped to get drinks at Snapple's after, um, and that's lemonade for her. Uh, and uh, we grabbed some ice cream over at Handles and talked about how Jesus is our perfect friend. And now, the reason I mention all that is, is in all of those things. and all those things I did for my little girl, just getting off work a couple hours early, Getting a pink bouquet, the sunglasses, the ice cream was all done for a very specific purpose. It was all intended for a very specific recipient. It's for my little girl, my five year old, my firstborn, Geneva May. Those things that I did was for my kid, it wasn't meant for your kid. It wasn't just for any kid, and I didn't. I didn't. I didn't just make this special afternoon daddy-daughter date possible. I made sure it happened for her. I planned it. I pursued her. I paid for gifts that would be received by my daughter, the intended recipient, when she needed it the most. In a very similar, but much greater magnificent way, the atoning work of Jesus on the cross was planned and paid for with intended recipients in mind. We talked last week about just the mysterious, mind-boggling doctrine of unconditional election last week. And well, well, those that God chose for salvation before the foundation of the world, they must still have their sins paid for atoned for. And this could only happen through the gift of God's Son in his life, in perfect life, in our place, and his death in our place on the cross, the death of Jesus Christ. And so the doctrine of grace that we're going to be unpacking this morning is what we call definite atonement definite atonement. Now, some theologians like to use the phrase limited atonement. Uh, I don't like that phraseology because it kind of focuses on, it kind of makes it sound small, right? Uh, It's not intended to, but it sort of sounds small. And so I like the phrase definite atonement. uh, Rather than than talking about uh, the exclusivity of it, I want to talk about the effectiveness of the atonement. What did the atonement of Jesus accomplish? And here's how we're defining it. Definite atonement says that God effectively saves his defined people through the fully sufficient atoning work of Christ the King on the cross. God effectively saves his defined people through the fully sufficient atoning work of Christ Jesus on the cross. Now, Jesus did not just make salvation possible for some people. He made it certain for many. He was our substitute in the fullest sense of that word. He died for the sins of his people. Again, this is top-shelf theology, and so we're going to be sort of jumping around different passages of the Scripture to see where we get this from. But I want you to remember on sort of the forefront of your minds this is something that we established that week, last week, which is that uh, uh, these, these great things of God and the things pertaining just to the beauty and the, the marvelous wonders of His grace uh, uh, can sometimes be a little bit difficult for our finite minds to understand it's like, how do we reconcile this? How, we, how do we? How do we? How do we? Uh, what do we do with these these tensions and these paradoxes? Like we established last week, I just I just want to humbly submit to you that man, the ways of the Lord are higher than our ways, the thoughts of the Lord are higher than our thoughts. That's from Isaiah 55. And so I want us to come into this humbly all of us with teachable spirits to see what god's word might have for us and so with that our first point uh let's kind of go 101 and define what is atonement what is the atonement i mean we're talking about definite atonement but before before we define definite atonement we need to first talk about what is atonement just generally speaking uh, and in defining atonement, what we see is that in the Old Testament, you had the Levitical law where God gave his people this day, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, where a high priest would take these, these two lambs. And one of them will get sort of stabbed in the throat and drained of its blood. It was sort of this gruesome Old Testament scene. And, and the other goat would get prayed over by a Jewish priest who is sort of a, a mediating between God and God's people. And this Jewish priest would pray all the sins of Israel to go on this second goat. And they would release it into the wild and, and, and call it a scapegoat. That's where we get the term from. And the purpose of all these Old Testament ceremonial laws, particularly as it pertains to the Day of Atonement, the purpose of all of those laws were to point forward to the work of Jesus, who would be God in the flesh who'd have his blood drained and his body carried away with the sins of the world. That's why we call him the Lamb of God. Jesus is our day of atonement. And in the same way that the priests in the Old Testament would pray and mediate and atone for Israel, Jesus prayed, served as mediator, and makes atonement for his people with his life. Here's how Jesus himself describes this in the Gospel of John, John 10, verses 10 and 11. The word, this is the words of Jesus. He says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He's talking about his church. He's saying, I came that they, my people, my church, may have life and have it abundantly. He says, I am the good shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down his life for who? For his sheep. For everyone? No, for his sheep. The sheep. Now, when the when the wolf comes, the thief, uh, the shepherd takes lays down his his life. And when it says the thief, that's a personification of our greatest enemy, evil, sin, and death. The things that we learned about in sermon number one on total depravity, the things that lay claim on our lives. Jesus says, instead of letting evil, sin, and death destroy you, I'm going to take them on myself here's how he he says it in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. He says, For even the Son of Man, speaking of himself, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The word ransom here is, is an interesting term in, in, in the New Testament Greek. It's a prison term, actually. It's the Greek word leutron, which means that a cost was paid to sort of loosen someone from their chains, like from imprisonment. I want you to think of a ransom note. Like when someone's been kidnapped, and the kidnapper leaves a note and says, hey, we'll give you your person back. If you pay a $1 million ransom, that means the person who was kidnapped will only be released through payment of a big cost. In this case, a million dollars. A ransom, is always attached to a cost. It always requires a cost. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to pay his life as the price to set us free. Free from imprisonment, free from the bondage to evil, sin, and death. Jesus came in our place to pay that cost. This is what theologians call penal substitutionary atonement. Penal meaning he satisfied the law's demands. Substitutionary meaning that he stood in our place. Atonement meaning he paid it with his life in full. In the ancient world, if someone would come to set a captive free, they would have to take on the payment of suffering themselves. I love the way that John Stott sort of plays around with this idea. And he says, the essence of sin is really man substituting himself for God. But the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. That's what salvation is. It's got ransom at its core, at its heart. It's God substituting himself for us. Sometimes you'll hear modern preachers say, like, Jesus died on the cross so that he could show us how much God loves us. They'll say he stretched his arms out on the cross so far to say, this is how much I love you. Now that just left to itself is not a big enough view of the atoning work of Christ. That left by itself is a tiny view of the cross, as beautiful as it is, as marvelous as it sounds. The cross is so much more than just some glorified love note. It's so much more than a good example of sacrificial love. The cross actually accomplished something. It actually got something done. Jesus stood in our place for our sins, absorbing the just wrath of God in our place. I remember this headline I saw I saw last year and I, I think I mentioned it in one of our sermons through the Gospel of Mark, but like it was about this this young Australian woman and, and, and there was this gruesome picture of her back where she had these giant pelts all over her back, just bruises from sitting hunched over during this massive hailstorm. Like giant pieces of, of 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 hail larger than the size of a golf ball. Coming down from the heavens, pelting cars and trees and houses, breaking windows, and this woman's in the middle of it, getting her back pelted by it. And there's just, just, just this nasty picture of her of her back showing like how, how it just destroyed her back got in, in the middle of this hailstorm. Now, if I told you if I told you that she did that, that she hunched over in the hailstorm just to prove to her kids, hey, like, this is how much I love you, that I'm willing to go through this just to show you as a display, this is how much I love you, to prove her love to her, her kids, you'd be like, dude, that's crazy, right? Like, what did that really accomplish? There are easier ways to show somebody that you love them. But if I told you that her child was a helpless, Vulnerable baby. And that the reason that she was hunched over in the hailstorm was to shield her baby from said hailstorm. That would mean something else entirely to you, wouldn't it? Her act of love actually accomplished something saved this baby's life like Jesus on the cross she absorbed the weight of the storm again and again and again in her baby's place so that her baby wouldn't have to receive the the hail she received it on her baby's behalf Jesus absorbed the storm of God's righteous wrath against rebellious sinners like us by standing in our place more truly said, by hanging in our place for our sins. He paid, in the fullest sense of that word, the ransom to free us. So did Jesus' atoning death provide a way for salvation, or did it actually save people? Did it actually save a defined people? And that's what I want to talk about in our second point, that the atonement effectively saves Those who belong to Christ. The atonement effectively saves those who belong to Christ. Now, in John 17, we get a glimpse of the prayer life of Jesus on his last night before he would go to the cross, before his sacrificial atoning death. In John 17, what we call his high priestly prayer, it's his last night before going to the cross and towards the beginning of this prayer. Here's what he prays. Jesus is in agony. He's thinking about what he has to do uh, the, just within the next 24 hours. He's, he's thinking about how the end of his life is unfolding, what's been prophesied before uh, the beginning of time and is just unfolding right before him. And, and in the beginning of this prayer, here's what he says in John 17, beginning in verse 6. Jesus is praying to God the Father. And he says, I have manifested your name. In other words, I've preached your name to the people whom you gave to me. Or the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, as they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Verse 9, he says, I am praying for them. This is wild. He says, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. He's praying for the church. He's praying for the church throughout the ages. He talks in elsewhere in this prayer about them believing in the word, about them being sanctified by the truth, about them being being sent into the world to proclaim the gospel. He's talking about, Jesus is praying for those who would come to saving faith. And he says in verse 6, these are the people whom you gave me. In verse 9, he says, right now I'm praying for them, not for the world, but for those whom you've given me. It's wild. You know what this passage tells us? This language, this passage, this prayer is dripping with a very specific purpose about a very uh, just intended uh, purpose. Jesus had in mind a specific people, a defined people. When he left his throne in heaven and came down to earth, lived his life, and now prepared to die on the cross uh, for our sins, he had his people in mind when he went through all that. He had his people in mind. As a good shepherd, he lays down his life for his sheep. Here's what he says in John 10 about that. In John 10, verses 12 through 15, Jesus says, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who doesn't doesn't own the sheep, he sees a wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees, the hired hand flees because he's just a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Verse 14, Jesus says, but I am the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. I lay down my life for the sheep. Man, there's so much richness going on in these verses, but here's what I want you to see. I want you to see, Jesus says he is no hired hand. He's no iron hand. His relationship with his sheep is not mere acquaintance. He's their shepherd. And because he's their shepherd, because he's our shepherd, he has this personal angst about, 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 about watching his sheep about caring for them, protecting them, about knowing them. Why does he have this personal angst? It's because he says they're mine. They're they're mine, he says. When Jesus looks at the elect throughout time, he sees a people that belongs to him. He's not a hired hand. He's not the kind of chump that that bails when things start to cost him something. No, he leans into that. And and he says, no, even when the wolf comes, I'm here. I lay down my life for you. And notice here in verse 14, when he says, I'm the good shepherd, I know my own, and my own know me. Who's he talking about? Who's his own? His people. The elect. That's who the shepherd lays down his life for. For all that would come to believe in him by grace through faith. To be clear, that doesn't mean that there isn't a universal call to believe in the gospel, because we still also see that throughout the New Testament. I mean, the most famous verse in the New Testament, God so loved the world, he loved the world in this way that whoever believes in him won't perish but have eternal life. That, that call goes out to all the worlds. But whoever believes in him, that's who won't perish. That's who he came for. That's the sheep that Jesus knows in the fullest sense of that phrase. There have been a few books written, uh, like on Psalm 23, from, from a shepherd's perspective. I know there's a few people here at our church that are reading one uh, by a man named Philip Keller. Uh, like our, our our groups right now, our home groups are going through a really in depth study through Psalm uh, twenty three, and so some people have been sharing uh, that book by Philip Keller. Uh, but I, I have an electronic copy of an, of another one. It's really similar, but it's by a guy named Douglas uh, McMillan. He was a shepherd that that would go on to be uh, a, a pastor of a church. And in in McMillan's commentary on on this passage, he tells a story. About how how one day he was he was on a train with one of his old old shepherd buddies, and so he kind of left the shepherd life uh, behind, um, right? Um, He's like, you can lead the shepherd life, but the shepherd life can't leave me. And so he's 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 hanging out with one of his old shepherd buddies, and his and his buddy uh, was telling him the story about how like a month earlier he had he had sold uh, like a handful of, of, of his of his lambs. And as the train was pulling out of the station, and they were they they, they looked out and, and saw this 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 pasture uh, up behind the train station, and they were rolling past a a flock of, of sheep. That we're not far from the tracks, and MacMillan's shepherd friend looks out and says to Douglas, "Look, those four, those those four over there are 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 my lambs. Those are there are four of my lambs over there in this in this flock." And Douglas MacMillan is talking about this in his commentary, and he's like, "It just struck him like how normal that was for shepherds." He didn't doubt his friend and go like, yeah, right, sheep all look the same, right? But as a fellow shepherd, he, he writes about how he understood that. He knew, he knew that shepherds, in some strange sense, just really know their sheep. And in a much truer sense than even that, Jesus Christ, the good shepherd. Knows his sheep he knew the sheep that had been given to him he could see them from his throne in heaven looking down over space and time he knows his flock he loves his flock he came down to protect his flock to get his flock to save them from the wolf of evil sin and death marvelous amazing grace what about this picture elsewhere in the scriptures the church is referred to as the bride of Christ that Jesus came to pursue to know to woo to himself, to lay down his life for her. There's nothing romantic about a dude that proposes to everyone and will just marry whoever chooses to come to him. The man Jesus, this. The bridegroom goes after his bride the sheep that he knew from the foundations of the world, from before the foundations of the world. He came to pursue her, to woo her passionately, to romance her, to lay down his life for her. All these, all these different images, the flock, uh, the bride, they all contribute to what makes the doctrine of definite atonement so beautiful. I love the way that David and Jonathan uh, Gibson articulate this on their, uh, on their uh, sort of academic theology book on the doctrine of definite uh, atonement. Uh, these are two guys that are both uh, pastors, and one of them is a pastor and a scholar a professor at Westminster Seminary, and they, they wrote this book, and in the preface, they write this together. They say, definite atonement, definite atonement is beautiful. It's beautiful because it tells the the story of the warrior son who comes to earth to slay his enemy and rescue his father's people. He is also the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. He's a loving bridegroom who gives himself for his bride. He's a victorious king who lavishes the spoils of his conquest and his kingdom on the citizens of his realm. You see, the doctrine of definite atonement, when we let it get beyond just this mental exercise that we do in our heads and actually let it grow down into our hearts, can make us worship, can make us marvel, to make us say, man, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like, like me. When Jesus died on that cross, he took on the sins of his people. He He paid for them in full. He atoned for them. He gives his people, his sheep, his bride, his church, his glory and righteousness. This beautiful exchange. Spurgeon says it this way. He says, Christ came into the world not to put men and women in a saved, salvable state, but into a saved state. On the cross, he didn't just make salvation possible. He, with his bride in mind, with the names written in the Lamb's book of life, Known before the foundations of time, saved his people, saved us. Now, I do want to talk for a moment about the expansive nature of the atonement. That's our third and last point. There is, in some sense, an expansive nature of the atonement of Christ. We've seen again and again, especially over these last couple weeks, uh, just the mind-boggling reality that Jesus died for His people, that those whose names are written uh, in in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world, like Jesus, came uh, to pursue them and to to die for them. We've seen that again and again. Yet, there is still a sense. There is still a sense in which Jesus died. For all people. We see this in 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 and 6, where it says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at, it says, the proper time. So what is this telling us? This is telling us not so much that Jesus effectively died for all people, not that he atoned for the sins of all people. We know that because other scriptures say something to the contrary. And also if he atoned for the sins of all people, then everyone would be saved. That's not Christianity. That's a heresy called universalism his death Jesus' death was sufficient to pay for the sins of the world it was fully sufficient to pay for the sins of the world but it was effective for his people not one drop of his blood was ever spilt in vain alright just to be clear now Paul mentions that this is the testimony given at the proper he says time Given at the proper time, this testimony, what he's saying there is he's expanding on this reality that Jesus came to die for all kinds of people, for all sorts of people. This was new. This was new to a lot of the people around in the time. I mean, I mean the, the, there was the, the popular view at the time was that if and when the Messiah did come, he would come for a specific group of people. But no, Jesus said and Paul says, the New Testament teaches that no, men, women, Jew, Greek, his church, his bride, his flock includes members from every tribe and every tongue and every century. You got to put yourself in sort of like a first century Jewish context to really feel the weight and gravity of this. One of the most shocking doctrines of early Christianity was the universal inclusiveness of God's plan. See, a lot, a lot of people think that, you know, they, they say, you know, Christianity is like the most exclusive religion uh, because, uh, because you say, you know, Jesus is, 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 is the only way. But like back then, man, back, back then, I mean, every religion, every worldview was entirely exclusive, either based on class or based on race or based on geography or location or heritage. Christianity introduced to the world, the dignity of all people, the worthwhileness of saving all people. In the first century, the most shocking doctrine of early Christianity was the universal inclusiveness of God's plan of redemption. That it wasn't just limited to one ethnic group, Israel, which some of the tribe of Israel assumed But instead, the atoning work of Christ on the cross does not play favorites. It is unconditional. There are no boundaries set by denomination or by social class or by nationality or heritage or political affiliations. The gospel goes out to everybody. And there's a remnant in every tongue, in every tribe, in every century that belongs to Jesus. I love the way that Jeff Metters, Acts 29 pastor in, in Houston, uh, I love the way he articulates this in, in, in his book, Humble Calvinism. He says, Jesus is the Savior of the world, of anyone, anywhere who receives him. And Jesus is the Savior of the world, defined as the elect sheep from all over the world who will receive him. Anyone in the world from Mozambique to Manhattan can be saved by Jesus. The grace of God does not discriminate. Does not discriminate. Not only does the atonement reach into all people groups. But part of the expansive nature of the atonement is that, is that in some sense, the atonement's effects also reach into all creation. Into all creation. There's a sense in which the victory of Jesus' death reaches into the depths of the seas and up into the highest heavens. His, Jesus' atoning death affects the stars of the sky and also in some way affects the soil beneath our feet. And to be clear, Jesus didn't die to atone for the sins of the stars and the dirt. That's not what I'm saying. But he did die to release the stars and the soil from the effects of the curse. The Bible is clear on that. Romans tells us, that creation groans waiting to be made whole again. Read, read, read what Paul says in Romans 8, verse 20 through 22. He says, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. He's talking about the effects of sin on, in, in, in the fall on all creation. Verse 21, or he says, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This is, this is wild. Paul's saying that creation itself, all creation will be set free from its bondage to the effects of sin to corruption and that in some sense, creation will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. In other words, every single one of us, you don't have to be a Christian to look around at creation and and just recognize, man, something's not right with the world. Something is not right with the state of things. It's hardwired into our, our psyches, hardwired into our, our souls, because deep down, as image bearers of God, we know that we were made for something beyond us, for something new. We were made for what Jesus, for what is promised through Jesus in Revelation 21 when, when it says that He makes all things new. Jesus' death and resurrection is the visual promise and guarantee that he is going to restore the universe and renew all things at the end of time as we know it. Marvelous, amazing grace. Now, to close, let's talk. What should this produce in our hearts, right? We established this early on. If we're, if we're talking things like doctrine and theology, like some of us come, come like the, those words carry baggage to us, that, that doctrine and theology is like sort of dry uh, mental exercises, but it doesn't have to be that way, right? Theology done rightly should affect our, our hearts. It should affect the way that we love God and the way that we love others. And so here's what I want us to see on what this doctrine should produce in our hearts. First, Man, it should give us this extravagant intensity in our worship, an intensity of worship. Some people think that this doctrine actually limits our view of God's love, but actually it does the opposite. It does the opposite because it amplifies and intensifies his love as a love that is special, as a love that is directed, as a love that saves in the fullest sense of the word, a love that never fails and always reaches its target. In Revelation 5, John describes a vision that he has of the risen Lamb of God. And and in this vision, he sees four just magnificent living creatures swirling around, singing praises to the Lamb of God. And, And here's what they sing. Read in Revelation 5, verse 9. He says, they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And this was the plan from before time in the first pages of Scripture. This is the plan we see come into fulfillment in the end of all time. Jesus came to pursue you you're a follower of Jesus, a faithful follower of Jesus, you can say Jesus came to lovingly pursue me, to call me to himself. And so that should, in some sense, give us an intensity of worship, like what happened in Revelation 5 to where we say, worthy are you because you ransomed by your blood, a people for God. Secondly, this should produce in us a heart of humility. You'll notice these great doctrines of grace every single week produce in some sense, like some posture or heart of humility in us. And it's because it takes the credit, any ounce of credit for our salvation and our righteousness away from us and gives it rightfully to God. Think about what the atoning work of Christ says about us, what Jesus accomplished by laying down his life, by paying a ransom. We were born dead in our trespasses and sins. Cosmic rebels without a cause. Guilty of breaking the moral law of God, corrupted by nature and choice. Even the good things that I do are mixed with impure motives. But Jesus took all of that. All of that, when he hung on that criminal's cross, he took all of that on himself. Definite atonement should remind you that if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, that Jesus died for you not because you're great, but because he's gracious. His grace is amazing. He had you in mind when he came, lived, and died. The penalty of your sins were paid for in full by the king of the cross. He didn't die for a hypothetical people whose name he didn't know. He died for those in the Lamb's book of life, his bride, his flock, those whom he knows by name. That should humble us. I love how John Piper puts this in in his book on the doctrines of grace. He says, God does not mean for the bride of his son, the church, to only feel loved with general, world-embracing love. He means for her to feel ravished with the specificity of his affection that he set on her before the world existed. He means for us to feel a focused, I chose you, and I sent my son to die to have you. That should melt us. That should give us a heart of humility. That should woo us towards the heart of God. Lastly, this should give us a love for the church. A love for God's people without discrimination. You see, God's specific and particular love not only humbles us, it also shows us how God loves his people, his church. It doesn't just show us how God loved us specifically, but it also shows us how God loved Christians, his church, his bride specifically. And we start to learn from that how to love one another in a similar way. We said a moment ago that the, the grace of God does not discriminate against us, and so we should not discriminate. <laughs> and our love towards others. Here's how John puts this in 1 John 4, verse 9 through 11. He says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Look at verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If God so loved us, like the way that's translated is kind of interesting in the the ESV, but like a better way to say that is if, if God loved us in this way, if this is the way that God loved us, then we also ought to love one another in that same way. He's speaking about the church. He's speaking about our love for each other. If God loves us specifically, not generally, then we should love one another specifically and personally without any sort of discrimination, without any sort of pretense. The faces that we see each week when we gather here on the Lord's Day on Sunday and in our home groups throughout the week are people for you to love, not just hypothetically, but actually. Actually love by getting to know people's names, by serving on a team to give to your church, by praying for one another and with one another, by encouraging one another, weeping with one another, rejoicing with one another, bearing one another's burdens, committing to one another. This is what God calls us to. A grace, and a love for believers that does not discriminate. Definite atonement should produce in us this intense, extravagant worship, a heart of humility, that's just thankful, grateful to God for his unconditional love. And in return, we display that love, we reflect that love to one another. Now, I know and this is some like sort of strong, top-shelf theology that might be new to some of you, but I don't want you to be discouraged by that if that's you this morning. If that's you this morning, I, I, I want you to remember that God pursues His people. That His grace is amazing. That you can read the scriptures for yourself. You can read these doctrines for yourself and rejoice in what God has done for you and prayerfully press in and ask God to reveal more of His grace to you that you might see how truly amazing it is. You know, there's some of us this morning. would know, be like, we consider ourselves more like theologues. We like to study doctrine. We, uh, we, it's like you're like, man, I knew the doctrines of grace before they were cool, right? And if if that's you uh, this morning, I just humbly submit to you uh, that hey, maybe, maybe God wants you to not just talk about how amazing this grace is, but to have a real sense of it in your heart where it's actually producing fruit in your lives. Not so that you can, you know, uh, sort of flex your theological knowledge, but so, so that you can love others. Well, love the Lord and your neighbor. Maybe you're weary this morning, longing for rest. Know that Jesus is the Good Shepherd who knows you, who makes you lie down in green pastures. He is your true rest, your perfect shepherd. Maybe you're feeling worthless this morning. Jesus is here to say to you, like I told my daughter this week, I love you. I'm your perfect friend. I, I value you. You're worth." So much to me that I'm willing to come and die for you. For all of this us this morning, all of us are in desperate need of a Savior. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations, or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.